I'm Karen Lewis, and thank you for listening to Recovery Bites, real talk with recovered professionals. This podcast is about life in recovery from an eating disorder. The good and the not so good. The successes and the challenges. Episodes will include stories from fully recovered professionals about the sometimes sad, sometimes painful, but always beautiful accounts from their recovery. Not their whole story, just bites. Hi, everyone. All right. You know how I'm a lover and I love every guest that comes on this podcast. There is something, though, about our guest for today, Crystal Bowlby, who for me just takes it to a whole nother level. Crystal is so calming and so soothing that I think at one point during the podcast, I asked her if she'll she'll be my therapist. <laughs> she talks about things such as that working in the field has actually helped her heal parts of herself that she never knew needed healing. How suffering can be a portal to making us better. She references that what she needed to do was learn to let go, to embrace vulnerability, and drop down into her heart. That was her healing. She also talks about the fact that she had to make the decision that she wanted to live more than she wanted to die. And I think that's a question that can sometimes be on the minds of somebody who's struggling with an eating disorder. So I think this is a really beautiful episode. Um, I think you're all going to really, really enjoy it. And I think we're just going to get started. All right, everybody. Have fun. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Recovery Bites, Real Talk with Recovered Professionals. I am sitting here right now, well, actually on Zoom, with an amazing dear colleague of mine, Crystal Bowlby. Crystal, thank you so much for being part of the show. Yay, so excited. Yeah, thank you for inviting me to sit with you. My pleasure. This is a perfect way for those of you who don't know, we're doing this on a Saturday morning. This is a great way to start my Saturday morning. Crystal, could you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself with regards to what are you doing now? You know, how did you, how did you come to being on the podcast? A little bit about that. Sure. Um, well, I've been in the eating disorder field for quite a few years. Um, Go like moving to California for grad school. Uh, and so getting my start there, but my dream was always to move back home. Um, I'm from Joplin, Missouri. And so uh, an opening presented itself with Laureate Eating Disorders Program about seven years ago. And so we moved from California back to Tulsa. And um, I'm a psychologist for the adult program. And 
just love it. I only take three patients at a time and um, just do kind of intensive work through acute medical stabilization, residential, partial, and then as they step down to transitional living. So I love it. Um, individual family therapy, group therapy, meals, um, all of that. Yes, that's right. You wrote in your paperwork that you love getting into the, I'm going to use the term nitty gritty, and I, I don't think that's appropriate, but anyway, I'm using it for the sake of this conversation. You love doing things like sitting down to meals with clients. Tell me, tell me, tell the listeners a little bit about what it is like that. I loved doing that. Tell me a little bit about your experience. Yeah, I feel like I'm such a relational person. And so talking about the task just didn't, doesn't really sit well. I want to like be in there to actually experience it with somebody. And when they're saying it's hard uh, to kind of have an understanding of what's hard about this and like talking about like the feelings that are there in the moment instead of after the moment um, and witnessing that and like being able to, to just kind of have just be a part of it with them. So I love that. I used to love when I would sit with clients, I, I used to love helping them breathe through a meal, helping them in a healthy way, take their focus off of the food and say, it's okay. This is the relational piece that you're talking about, or at least for me. It's okay. Connect with me. I'm sitting right here with you right now. This meal is more than just the fear of the calories. It is also about connection. That's that's where you and I are very, very similar. And I think that has to do with being a recovered clinician. It's that intimacy that that what we remember from our own eating disorder. And by the way, and I say this all the time on a podcast, whether your eating disorder was anorexia, bulimia, binge eating disorder, whatever it is, there can still be a lot of fear around the food. So that's one of the things that I love. I also love the fact, and you and I were talking about this a little while ago, that you do a lot of writing. You've done some research. And I'm gonna I'm gonna say the name of the article because this is so interesting. You wrote an article with three other authors, and it's called Recovered Professionals Exploring Eating Disorder Recovery, a qualitative investigation of meaning. Can you say a little bit about that? Because there are some really powerful, interesting things that came from this article about working with a recovered clinician. Yeah. What, um, what generated uh, my interest in the article was uh, looking at uh, more of like the medical model of so focused on uh, symptom abatement. And to me, um, while the food part is important for recovery, I feel like if that's the only thing attended to, uh, that doesn't lead someone to really live out recovery. And so um, being interested in what are those qualitative things that extend beyond what someone does or doesn't do. Um, and I've always been interested in elements of hope and um, kind of a sense of meaning and purpose in life. Um, and so 
kind of wanting to kind of explore that, some of those qualitative factors that are beyond uh, just a checklist of, oh, this person isn't binging or purging or restricting. Um, right. And by the way, for me, that's the whole part of the recovery process. I had a misunderstanding in my own experience that I thought that once I finished using behaviors, once that there was a cessation of behaviors, that my eating disorder was over. And I often say, oh, no, no, no. That was just the beginning because then I had to look inside. I had to go inward to figure out what is my purpose? What is my meaning in life? What meaning do I make of it? What meaning do I make of the world? That to me was the beginning, the most frightening and the most exciting part of my recovery. I don't know if you have anything to add to that. Yeah, absolutely. I I love that you say it's the start because really the um, getting rid of the behaviors is only the foundation. You know, if we look at building a house, um, I really feel like um, the foundation is laid when you stop using behaviors, but no one would be happy with a house that just had a foundation. You know, you need the walls and then you need, um, you know, furniture inside and you need insulation and you need a way to enter and to exit the house. And so um, I really believe that as well, that um, getting on solid footing, that's a start, but that's when, uh, that's when you really can show up for the work. You have that basic foundation of, um, being, being with yourself enough that you can start understanding what was driving those behaviors to begin with. And I don't know if this is your experience from working in treatment centers, but this is mine working at residential level of care one of the most, uh, I'm going to use the word dangerous and forgive me, everybody. I'm using words saying for the sake of this conversation, but dangerous is not the right word, but for sake of conversation is that the dangerous part is people get discharged when behaviors stop and they are not prepared to be out in the world that was so intolerable to them. And this is what creates that cycle of the client that continuously comes back into treatment, back into treatment, back into treatment. And unfortunately, the client is the one is as deemed as, you know, not motivated, not wanting it, defiant. It's not that at all. It's that Again, if we discharge people right when the behaviors stop or right when they get to a particular weight, we're missing the most critical part, the part that got them there in the first place. How do you navigate? I just, I just thought of this, and this was not part of the conversation originally at all, but how do you navigate with the clients? That, because I know I worked with many, many clients that came back often and often. And I guess, how did you do it using that amazing metaphor of like, you need the walls, which by the way, to me, feel like the healthy boundaries. You need the insulation, which to me does mean like the nourishment. You need the doors in and out, which means you understand that you have locus of control of your life. Like, how do you help a client that keeps going back into treatment? Yeah, 
like to me, I, I really feel uh, for kind of patients that come back in, uh, really honing that part of you're not starting over from scratch, uh, that it really is you're taking all of the work that you've done up until this point with you. And yes, you got derailed in your life or maybe, um, you know, things didn't work out in the way that you wanted, but you were able to learn something. And so how do we keep building on that? Um, and even getting the people in, in, you know, outside of treatment life, their supports anchored where uh, it's not so much of a gap between treatment and out of treatment, but you're one team, um, you're, you know, the continuation of that, even when they discharge, that it's, you know, have more a smooth transition into those stressors. But um, I know that that's not always possible to have a smooth transition, um, but kind of knowing how to navigate, helping them navigate their life outside of treatment while they're in treatment as well. Mm-hmm. It's so, it's so important. I want to change gears though, because we're talking about all these other people. I want to focus on you. So Crystal, one of the things that's so powerful about your story is you said that you remember hiding food as young as three or four years old. The reason I bring that up is because I feel like there are so many people that are listening to this or family members that are saying, oh, I've had my eating disorder for 10 or 15 years. I'm never going to get better. Or I've had my, you know, my daughter or my son has had their eating disorder for. Do you have any words of wisdom to people that feel like I'm chronic? Because I really hate that word, to be honest with you, Crystal. Yeah, I kind of hold that hope for people that it's never too late um, to start building on a life. And I can't count the number of people in my eating disorder that said, you know, you're this, why don't you just enter palliative care? Or, um, and I think in that, um, that it's true that maybe the eating disorder is habituated and maybe that's all that you ever know or uh, what feels right or the way that you've coped, but there's unlimited potential inside, right? It's, um, I feel like my soul self, even though it wasn't activated, you know, I wasn't listening to it uh, in my eating disorder. It was still there calling out to me and there was uh, still something bigger and a bigger image that was more powerful than the eating disorder. Um, and, uh, so my personal philosophy, I don't care if someone has struggled for 50 or 60 years with an eating disorder. Um, I feel like, uh, the exact same skills that it takes to maintain an eating disorder. If you can learn how to utilize those skills towards the light, uh, that hope can come and healing can come and connection can come uh, with yourself and with other people. Yeah. You and I have both done a lot of training with Carolyn Costin. And Carolyn talks about taking the darkness into light. So basically saying what, just, and I'm sort of reiterating what you just said, but whatever traits went into the eating disorder, we don't want to throw them away. Those are signals. Those are important things to to pay attention to, but you're using you, I'm, I'm using you, but we or I was using all of that in darkness. 
I needed to shift that energy. So anybody, so for however long they've been in the eating disorder for, they have the traits to turn into lightness. Absolutely. How, well, before I say how, do you ever get triggered working in the field? Yeah, I really, I really haven't. Um, I think I've, like, I kind of expected that going into it. I think that's why I didn't want to work with eating disorders. Um, And yet the opposite has been true. I feel like working in the field has healed me in places that I didn't know I needed healed. Um, And even uh, the development of self-compassion, I feel like sitting and working with patients has given me a new perspective on my my younger uh, self that needed healed. And, um, you know, recently my daughter found a stack of journals in my closet. Um, and, you know, I was away at work and my husband heard something rustling in the, you know, upstairs. And so he's like, oh, honey, what are you doing? And she's like, oh, mommy has pretty handwriting. And um, so he kind of put a hold on it and said, just wait until mom comes home and she'll let you know, you know, if, if this is something that's appropriate to read. Um, and so I got home and like, you know, why don't I just read through those to see if there's anything that would be appropriate for you? But I had 15 years worth of journals in this um, Tupperware box. And I spent uh, a whole weekend reading through all of them and um, just finding myself weeping for myself, like emotions that I could not access during the time of struggle and seeing it through new eyes and um, just being able to love myself through that experience, you know, um, and to see how much I had grown and had like held this new perspective and being able to cry for myself in ways uh, when I had despair. Um, And I think, you know, that that partly I've been able to get there as a result of of seeing the eating disorder through a new lens. You know, that right now as a whole, as a healed, recovered uh, professional, um, there isn't any enticement there to go back to behaviors. Uh, There isn't a draw there. I'm so thankful and I'm so full of gratitude for being able to be present with my suffering as well as uh, my joy. And so, um, you know, when I, when I see uh, my patients suffering, um, there isn't the feeling of, oh, I want to be in the eating disorder. It's like, oh, I feel so so sad that they're in this trapped, lost place that they don't know that life uh, can be better. They don't know that they can hold uh, their feelings or work through them. They don't know that uh, there can be beauty in sitting with anxiety and fear and doubt and um, that there can be true connection with somebody, not based on what you do, but because you're both part of the human, human condition. So, Crystal, I want to I want to say what comes up for me when you're talking about your daughter finding your journals. I will tell you my immediate feeling in my chest because that's where I get all my signals from. 
And it is amazing how we can think of so much in a split second. I, I think I want to ask you a question and then I'll tell you why after I'm asking the question. I want to ask you what it's like being a recovered person who is in the field, which by the way, it's different being recovered and then doing something completely different and then you have children. But I think when you're in the field, you are constantly thinking about eating disorders, talking about eating disorders. So not only are you working it, but you're also drawing from your own personal experience. What is it like having children, both young girls, young boy, you have a, ch- a young girl and a young son, daughter, son, and thinking about how do I protect my child from going through what I work with every single day? And I'll tell you uh, one of the things that comes up for me, and I don't think I've ever shared this on the podcast, is one of the reasons and there's many, but one of the reasons I never had children, and this could be considered quite a controversial statement for me to make, but I was terrified. I was terrified that I would have children with eating disorders and I wouldn't know how to help them. I was terrified that my personality traits would be given to my children, which would then have me watching children with depression and anxiety and eating disorders. Um, And I think that scared me enough that it was one of the reasons I didn't want to have children. How do you be a parent working in this field and have two young children? How do you, and then have a daughter who sees your journals? What comes up for you? Um, First off, I want to say like having children has been the most, most precious thing to me in my whole life. Uh, I didn't set out to have kids, um, but we were actually on birth control, took it at the same time every single night at nine o'clock. Um, and I knew actually because of recovery, I knew that I was pregnant uh, with my daughter uh, before it even showed up on a pregnancy test. I just had this intuitive sense of something is different in my body. Um, and as a result of having her, I loved mothering so much. We had to have another child because I'm like, wow, like, why did we not want to do this? Um, And there are those moments where I have kind of the question of like, oh, wow, I have no idea what I'm getting myself into or uh, the learning curve from that. Um, But I really feel strong in my gut that, um, you know, worst case scenario, if one of them were to exhibit signs of an eating disorder, uh, having faith that there are great resources out there and uh, that I would be able to walk alongside them through that, I definitely would wish that they wouldn't have to live out the same suffering that I had in my life. But I also know that uh, as a result of my own recovery, my children are benefiting from the gifts of recovery that I've learned along the way. Um, You know, in my eating disorder, I didn't know how to express or talk about my feelings. Uh, I didn't know how uh, to manage anxiety. Um, I didn't really feel the comfort of... uh, 
of talking about my body or even like the process of puberty or um, those like my mom, I, both of my parents have passed, um, but I can't remember a single time in my life where my mom ever uh, talked about her body or I gave any indication of what puberty was or talked about periods. And, you know, my daughter already feels comfortable at 10 years old um, saying like, mom, I think I need to go get deodorant or, you know, or like, oh, I can't wait until I uh, start my period. You know, it's, um, there isn't that body shame right now. And I know that she's at 10. So that thought of um, those uh, puberty years and early adolescence and teenage years that, uh, that social situations can be difficult in that. But, um, I hope that, you know, my hope is that we can lay a strong enough foundation in that where, uh, the connection is present, where she's not alone in that, even with mom, even though there'll be a time, uh, where I'll have to, let her go more and more uh, to turn to those peer relationships. Um, but to me, I really feel like recovery more has informed me as a parent uh, versus deters me from the what ifs. Uh, and the same with my son, um, who knows what he'll face, but um, I guess to me, like my, uh, my portal in my life to open me up was my eating disorder and chances are life will happen to my son and daughter, uh, in different ways. They'll have different portals, but how can I, as a parent, um, be present with them in that and even model that they're, that I believe in their capacity to deal with hard things and, uh, to grow from it or to still, um, to still have purpose and meaning in their life, despite what their circumstances are. This is where I, uh, I just spoke at a conference and I talked about uh, regard, re- regarding therapists that we are human first, therapist second. And so I think, you know, you and I were talking about like, I'm always going to be working on myself because I am a human first. And part of my human work is, how do I say this? That, I'm going to take a step back because I want to say one thing first. First of all, obviously, because you and I are fully recovered people on a podcast right now, I do not consider an eating disorder as a death sentence. And I know that's even provocative to say because it can does have a high mortality rate. Nor do I see human suffering. There is something about my nervous system that when it comes to holding clients suffering or their family I embrace it. I hold it. I love it. I want to nurture it, take care of it. When it comes to family, my family, that's where my work is crystal. And that's where I say I was so afraid to have my own children because I don't know if how I would navigate it with my own kids. It's interesting. It's also really powerful to know yourself that well, right? To say, wow, I know that these are my fears and I'm going to work through them and I'm, I'm okay with them, right? 
I feel like this is my own therapy session. Everybody, welcome to Karen's Therapy Hour. (laughs) (laughs) But I often, like I often think that with, you know, does it ever concern you that if you're talking about your work at home, there's a lot of talk about eating disorders and you have young little souls there. I think I'm again. I'm I'm using my own fears. I'm sorry, Crystal. I'm sorry, everyone. I am projecting my own fears onto Crystal, but that's my question. If I were in the audience right now, this is what I would be asking. What are your thoughts about that? Uh, just I like try to think. Um, I'm trying to think how it comes how it comes up in my home because my kids definitely know what I do, and um, like once. One time I was trying to explain to them um, kind of the gist of, of what I was doing. And it, I think I said something like, oh, I like, uh, I work with people who have a hard time loving themselves. And, you know, later on um, that afternoon, my daughter had started making all of these love affirmation cards that had said like, oh, like no one should uh, have to feel like they aren't loved. And, you know, she wanted to make these cards for people, um, in her life, uh, but she, you know, people she doesn't even know, but she knows I'm connected to, uh, but as a way of just saying like, wow, you are loved. Um, and I think my approach isn't so much at home talking about eating disorders and they, you know, they see, uh, they see some examples of that in their life. Like uh, I've gone to bat with the school board or sent letters to the teacher when they're asked to bring a healthy snack to school and kind of writing those letters of like, oh, at our house, we don't do good foods, bad foods. Uh, We really just treat all foods the same. And, um, And sometimes I'll be the rebellious one. That's like, you know, I'll just go ahead and send the chips to school because it'll say specifically like, oh, don't bring chips to school. And it's like, oh, let's bring, you know, why don't you bring chips every day in your lunch this week? Um, so I think it's those things, but we, you know, I have the, the overall message in my house that we don't do diet talk. Like I teach them health at every size. Like we uh, do a lot of gratitude for bodies. They don't ever hear uh, me or my husband talk disparagingly about other people or their bodies. Um, you know, we have no diet talk. People come over and we offer seconds, you know, or thirds or however much someone wants to eat. Um, and so I think with that, they show up with me to the the NIDA walks and the Alliance walks and things like that. Um, and so I know that those factors aren't always protective, um, but hopefully laying that foundation um, there too, where culture, I know we're all going to be impacted by culture and, and sometimes that culture can be toxic, but to be just knowing that we're offering an alternative approach uh, to what they're presented with outside the home. And that may or may not be enough, but. Yeah. Yeah. Beautifully said, beautifully said, Crystal. What just came up in me is there are little moments in my day and I don't mean daily, but every once in a while I get these powerful memories of 
my younger self when I was, I, you know, I had very low self-esteem as a child. I had depression, anxiety, all these things. And every once in a while I can drop into that younger self. And just like you said, I, that's when I cry for her. Cause now, cause just like you said, now I can. Now I know that crying for that young person, that young soul that didn't feel like she understood life is the appropriate emotion to have. It's okay. And it's, it's, it's wonderful to honor the sadness that I had experienced. It also allows me to honor the person I've become because I didn't stay stuck by using my eating disorder. That's the difference. That's really the difference between somebody who's still in it and somebody who's recovered is that are you, and I know the word choice is not a fun word for clients, but are you choosing to stay stuck because you feel there's no alternative or you you think you cannot tolerate the emotions, whatever it is, I'm so grateful that I realized I can move through this. One of my favorite books, and I always say her name wrong, uh, Pema Chandron. Is that how you say it? Uh, I believe so. Pema Chodron. All of a sudden, the book, the title is escaping me. I feel like every time I do a podcast, titles escape me. Where she talks about leaning into when when things fall apart. Fall apart. That's right. It is one of the best books about leaning into suffering is the only way out and connecting with others. You know, I know there's a lot of talk in the field about trying to define what the definition of being recovered is. And I think it's unique for everybody. What is your definition of being recovered? Um, I have a pretty simple definition. To me, being recovered is being at home. Um, You know, the process of recovery was learning, uh, returning home or coming home. And uh, to me, being recovered is uh, being at home in myself, in my body, kind of knowing that I belong here, um, all of my feelings belong here. Um, My thoughts come and go. They're kind of companions on the journey, just as my feelings are. Um, But my soul is is present and stable and consistent. And um, I I don't have to flee her. Um, And so attending to her, um, allowing space for her, listening to her, To me, um, just simply being home. Did you, do you find, were there particular therapies that got you there to this, on the spiritual path that helped facilitate this process? Um, You know, in my eating disorder, I always heard desperate people do desperate things. And so in my path to recovery, I feel like that desperation kind of took off and I got to a point where I was willing to try anything and everything. Um, And so I I have a hard time naming one particular thing 
that helped. Um, but the curiosity of doing multiple things, um, CBT and ACT, and uh, I went to soul retreats and art therapies and, and breath work and um, hypnosis and um, psychodrama and um, just on and on, you know, um, group therapies and just all of these different ways of seeing the world through a different lens and um, hearing different perspectives for things. Um, I'm a very cognitive person by nature. I love, you know, that we were talking about loving learning and um, and studying, reading, those things. And so some of the most influential parts of my recovery were actually doing the opposite of what came natural. Um, coming out of my comfort zone as a way of uh, trying to re-engage my body with, you know, um, going to, to soul retreats where uh, I forced myself to dance, to be uh, more aware of my body and how, um, how it was in unison with my emotions and um, like doing, doing yoga um, as a way to connect. Yeah. You and I were at the same retreat, weren't we? Like 15 years ago. Oh, maybe so. It's, it's really hard to, to know because the timeline. I feel like, or, or maybe it was somebody else on the podcast. Um, we're, excuse me, listeners. I'm just going to get a little information here. <laughs> Were you, I'm assuming when you're talking about the retreats, are you talking about attending or tending to the feminine psyche in Hawaii? Um, I actually was not in the one, the Hawaii one. We did not go together then. We overlapped. This is something that's very interesting. And this is why I bring it up because you wrote in your paperwork that one of the reasons why you were on this journey of many, many graduate degrees, you know, multiple masters, a PhD, things like that, is you were trying to almost figure yourself out. And I know that I am not a scholarly person. What I am, though, is somebody who's always trying to figure myself out. And I don't think I started to really get to know myself until I started working in the field. And one of the things was when I went to tending to the feminine psyche. When all books were at the wayside, there was no literature to read. There was nothing because I could read about myself forever. But until I dropped into myself, until I felt myself, until I felt myself in relationship with other women, I was going nowhere. I was just spinning my wheels and reading a lot, a lot of literature. And, and it sounds like you had a similar experience. By the way, this is about getting out of your comfort zone for the recovery process. Yeah, and for me, the reading part, um, that just generated a similar thing, a feeling like I had to figure it out on my own and as if I were going to fix myself. You know, and, and my eating disorder is such a solitary experience pulling away and, you know, striving for these, these self-generated goals. Um, but my recovery process was all about learning how to not do it by myself and how to allow people in. And I can remember initially in those, you know, going to 
to retreats and not being able to make eye contact with people. It was like uh, closing my eyes because the gaze of somebody would be uh, just too much. Um, and now just knowing that that's such a connecting point for me of being able to just observe or to gaze in somebody's eyes and to just take in that mutual exchange. How vulnerable though, because as we know, the eyes are the window to the soul. And how vulnerable when you have self-loathing to have somebody gaze into your eyes and feel like they're looking right into your soul. That's hard work. There's something that you wrote in your paperwork that I want to read because I think this is really, really interesting. So you wrote, I attempted to approach recovery like I approached everything else with my mind, with working harder, doing more, setting goals. This led led to me wearing myself out, going through the motions and spinning my wheels, getting discouraged and burning out over and over again, sending me back into behaviors. Working harder was not the answer, but learning to let go, to embrace vulnerability, to drop down into my heart, to listen, to learn, to be comfortable in the questions instead of having the answers, trusting that God and the universe held me and would lead me where I need to be to the opportunities of learning that I needed. I love that. I want to I reiterate the sentence one more time because working harder, working harder was not the answer, but learning to to let go, to embrace vulnerability, to drop down into my heart, to listen, to learn, to be comfortable in the questions instead of having the answers. Can you speak to that? Because that's beautiful. That's recovery. Uh, To me, um, you know, learning how to tolerate uncertainty. (laughs) Um, You know, I, I definitely in my eating disorder clung to safety uh, what was known, what I could predict, what was comfortable. Um, that part of knowing, you know, for me, recovery had a, a lot to do with allowing um, spirituality to kind of take hold, to recognize uh, the universe has a plan. God has a plan for me. I'm not alone here. Um, that something was aware of me before I was ever born. And um that there are no surprises. And so um, trusting in that to uh, to kind of fashion the steps ahead um, where it wasn't up to me, my success, my recovery, my story, it wasn't up to me. Um, But there was, you know, there was already beauty there and that wasn't up to me either. That um, to me, I do equate that being to God, but really feeling uh, that God, completely crafted my whole life and everything that I, that I am seeing me as a masterpiece already. And so learning how to exude that into the world and, um, believing that there could be beauty in everything, even, uh, in the brokenness or, um, in my weakness or my faults or, uh, things that I don't understand that there still could be beauty in that. And I think that's a really hard thing for people to understand 
understand that even in the darkness, there is beauty. If you allow yourself to be present and not in the eating disorder, if you're in the eating disorder, you really only see the darkness, right? So I've used this example a thousand times. My father passed away. Gosh, it's going to be 16 years coming up soon. Devastating experience. Also, because I was fully present, I found such beauty in his the last few months of his life. I have such comfort holding on to how I remember the last few months of his life were. Also, beauty in making mistakes. I have made mistakes in life that have cost a lot. I had to do a lot of repair. But what I learned from those mistakes and then repair and then reconnection was invaluable. But if I stopped right at the mistake and said and threw my hands up and said, I'm just going to go engage in behaviors, it stays dark. That's what that when people say there is beauty in 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 suffering. Do you have any thoughts about that? Uh, you know, I've always hated um that adage that people say, oh, everything happens for a reason. Um, that never really set well with me. Um, but then the approach of it is like, it might not happen for a reason, but let's not waste an opportunity. And so um, however we come to those moments of suffering, it's like, wow, what if that can be a portal into understanding ourselves better? Or what if that could be a way for us to connect even more deeply with somebody? Or uh, what if that helps us understand that we're not alone? in the world and that we can, um, that we have a shared experience with someone. Yeah. I, I have a hard time with that expression as well. And by the way, if you do adhere to that expression, please hear me, everybody. When I say I, I respect all people's opinions, I'm just saying for myself, that expression is hard for me. And I, I'll tell you why. So about 26 years ago, I was in a terrible, terrible accident. So many people said to me, well, it happened for a reason. I interpreted that two ways. One, I'm a bad person. So it happened for a reason, like I'm bad, that's why. And two, if it happens for a reason, it could happen anytime again. I have no locus of control of my life. That that expression in it of itself traumatized me. One day somebody said to me, I am so sorry that this happened. Do you think you can take something from it though? Can you learn from it? It shifted my whole trauma response. And as I've said many times on the podcast, I don't think I went through my final healing until I went to trauma therapy. And I always had that voice in the back of my head. I'm sorry this happened. Do you want to take something from it? Can you learn from it? Meaning you can't undo it. Accident happened. It's done. What you choose to do moving forward is your choice in how you're going to navigate through life. It's so interesting that you said that. 
how do you try to work with clients with spirituality or do you allow them to bring it in only if it resonates with them? Yeah. Uh, well, Tulsa is right in the middle of kind of Bible belt. And so I know that we get patients from kind of all over the country, but I feel like at least, you know, 70% of patients have that as some kind of background in their life. Um, but I definitely allow, um, them to bring that in and even, um, looking at spirituality as a whole, um, you know, to me, spirituality is, is that part of connecting to self and other connecting to nature or, um, being aware of how, um, how we impact one another. And so I think broadening that context and, um, kind of looking to see where are those, factors for somebody um, or how would they define that for themselves? Do you feel that for you personally, spirituality was a big guider for your recovery? Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm, Absolutely. Yeah. I think that part of just um, giving some hope of something greater than myself being present and, um, you know, meaning and purpose and, um, also the way I view people, um, in terms of being, uh, not just bodies in the world, but all of us are souls, um, that extend well beyond our bodies, you know, that our, our body is just kind of that vessel that carries our soul around, but because our souls, um, extend beyond our bodies. It's like our, the energy of our souls can connect one another. That's how I can truly empathize with you because I can be in your, in your shoes or I can sense where you're at. Yeah. Yeah. Do you remember when you were going through the recovery process? Was it a gradual shift? Was there something, you know, some, I'm going to say most people, but that sounds like I'm I'm making a a general statement of the way it should be, which I'm not, but most people, at least my experience was it was very gradual. There were like a a million things that went into my recovery process. Some people say, nope, it was at this moment that I said no more. I'm going to turn it around. How about for you? I can remember a defining moment where I had the, um, this wish come up of, I want to live more than I want to die. And so kind of helping me engage in recovery in ways that I hadn't in the past. But after making that decision, um, it took uh, several more layers to unfold, to really own that choice in me or to learn that it was a choice. And I can think back to times where I thought I was even more recovered than I was just because, you know, I would reach this milestone and it would be so different than where I started that I would think, oh, like this is recovery to then come to learn like, oh, well, here's recovery in this area. Let's revisit these other things. You're still really stuck here in this place, this pocket here. And so um, being able to focus more attention on that. And I feel like life continued to unravel in that way of, um, showing me those blind spots, um, and kind of that aspect, you know, we, I've heard it on this podcast too, that, that we recover from an eating disorder, but we never recover from life. And so having kind of life unfold, and then it really points you to what are my copings 
in that, how am I approaching uh, situations where um, kind of has you look at your healing in that way, but just that deepening. Um, and I hope I never recover from life. You know, it's like we're on that journey um, until until life is over of how do we allow more life in? How do we engage in our life more and more and more and more? What would you say to a client? I'm, I'm imagining right now some people are listening to this saying, I'm not like Crystal. I don't want to live more than I want to die. I have some clients that are, have been very vocal to me saying, this is my slow suicide. What do you say to that? How do you help that soul? And when I say help, we really can only guide but or hold it. I hold it for them. How do you hold that for that soul that says, I don't have that urge to live. I don't care. Yeah, I think for me, um, that's just a, a, a testament more of the desperation and how fatigued and exhausted someone is, um, how lonely that process is, or how despairing. Uh, and that is an area where I could look back and hold that to say like, wow, I lived in that place um, for several years of just thinking, what is the purpose? Like, why am I here? Like, um, and kind of feeling desperate, you know, even like going to bed at night and crying like, oh, like, please just let this, like, let me not wake up tomorrow. Um, and just knowing that um, for me, it's always a hopeful sign when someone is able to start putting words to that feeling. You know, it's like, wow, what a trusted gift this person is talking about how desperate they feel or how burdened they feel with their life. And so to me, that's a sign somewhere, even if they're not aware of that inkling of hope inside, they're still reaching for connection by you know, seeking out an honest, authentic um, disclosure of where they are, you know. Um, and so building on that part, um, building on that connection of not being alone, or what is that? What would a life worth living even look like? Can you envision that? Um, and I think that learning how to dream again in recovery or in life um, just creating um, a scene in your mind of how you want things to be or how you wish that they could, or um, maybe a long lost thing. You may have already given up hope that you could ever have those, but um, just getting a picture of if that weren't the case, uh, I think that gener like that brings hope, just having some kind of image, you know, or being able to set in a connection with somebody. And, you know, even if we spent a whole hour just talking about that, what does it feel like right now to be with me and to be seen or to know you're not alone in this minute or this moment? Um, and life, I think of invalidating life can be really hard. Sometimes living in the eating disorder is despairing. Um, it does feel uh, like you're trapped or that you're lost or that, um, that there isn't a way out. I think for me, it's one of the reasons that I got into the field. When I have a client 
say something that vulnerable to me or something that they've never said to anybody else because they're so embarrassed or afraid of shame or afraid of judgment. Crystal, those are moments that I sometimes get tears in my eyes. And I'm not saying tears because what the client said is scary or upsetting because that's what I craved the entire time I was in my eating disorder. I could not speak my truth because I was so ashamed. I was so embarrassed. I had so much judgment. I thought if anybody knew what the thoughts were that were going on in my mind, they would institutionalize me. And when someone takes the courage, Crystal, it's like the reason I went into the field. Like this is just coming to me now. That my heart expands a thousand times. And I think this was a good day. Somebody just somebody just released something they may have been holding for 10 years. Wow. Okay. Wow, that was a day. And, and I think we all go into the field from some of our own trying to heal some of our own past. And for me, I think it was, I always want someone to have a voice. Well, we all have a voice, but I, I always want them to use it. Say anything. There's nothing you can say that will shock me, horrify me, you know, whatever it is, say it. Because if you're thinking it, you're thinking, like, you know what I mean? There was something about when you said that, that that's just what came up in me. I think it's the best part of our field. Do you feel, well, let me actually ask you, do you, dis- I was going to say, do you disclose to your clients, but I'm assuming since you're on a podcast <laughs> that you do. And if you didn't, they all know now, are you, do you use your own narrative at times when you're di- like, do you self-disclose and say to clients, like I've often said to clients, wow, like I, 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 I want to honor them by saying from my experience I never had the courage to say that in my eating disorder. And I want to honor you for saying that. Do you ever use things like that? Yeah, I think that, um, you know, I probably am on the spectrum of keeping details to a minimum where, you know, I'll even say uh, that I, that I'm recovered or that I can understand an experience, or I might say what you just did of, um, you know, I really relate to that, or I resonate that, or I'm so thankful um, that you're talking about that because I can remember not being able to say that. And I think that that makes a difference of just the shared experience. You know, um, I really, uh, as a clinician work hard to, I know that in a treatment setting, especially sometimes there can be a power differential or, um, kind of those, um, feeling like I have authority because I sign off on passes or I'm part of the process of allowing privileges and, and things, but, um, just that relational part of we are one human, human, and, um, you know, they're coming in and, and they may need my help or support for some things, but I'm also learning from them in the process. And so, uh, that part of just, being aware and open of that, of being able to say, wow, I really, I relate to that. And 
Uh, this is how I felt when you said that. Yep. It's so powerful. It really, really is. As is your voice, Crystal. I am sorry to say this, but we are going to have to start closing down the episode. Before we do, and you know I have a final question for you, but before I even get to the final question, is there anything you would like to say that I didn't ask you or anything you would just like to add? Uh, I think uh, just in my gratitude practice, I want to just share my heart with you of just wanting to give back to you and and thank you for holding this space and for having the vision to create this this podcast and for being such a voice of inspiration and hope to other people, your willingness to talk about uh, what you've learned uh, through your life journey. Uh, that I am just one of many who have been blessed and touched by this. And I just feel really honored that you would have me uh, here to share this, this space with you today. So you are a lovely, a lovely, lovely woman. And I feel uh, fortunate um, to know you and to be here. Crystal, I can't thank you enough that that did go right into my heart. And I am honored to have you as a guest on the podcast and a colleague and somebody that I can collaborate with and have these beautiful conversations with. So thank you for being on the on the show. We're going to turn it a little bit from this love fest. And I'm going to ask you your final question. <laughs> Which is, if you were a character in a movie, book, or television show, what genre would you live in? Yes. What came to mind is I I would want to be on the set of Gilmore Girls, for sure, hands down. Um, I would want to, you know, I, it's hard to determine which character on the show, um, but just to be there and to listen to the troubadours and to eat uh, Suki's food and to sit there and have coffee with Rory and Lorelai, I would be on cloud nine. (laughs) You are awesome. I love that answer. I love it. (laughs) Maybe we'll recreate it somehow. Yeah. Give me a Luke Steiner. Right. There we go. Okay. Okay. All right. Crystal again, Thank you so, so much. It is always a pleasure doing this. And I just, like I said, I love spending my Saturday morning with you. So this is a treat for me. All right, everyone. Thanks for listening to another episode of Recovery Bites, Real Talk with Recovered Professionals. I look forward to speaking with all of you again next week. Okay, stay safe. Take care. That's a wrap for this week's episode of Recovery Bites, real talk with recovered professionals. And I thank each and every one of you for tuning in with me. You can view more from today's episode, including guest information and excerpts by visiting www.karenlewisedc.com forward slash podcast. You can subscribe to future shows by searching Recovery Bites on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. All right, everybody, be well, and thanks for listening to my Bite for the Week.